The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Hello and welcome to Number Wang. And today is a very exciting edition of Number Wang because it's our 9,341st program. Well, joining me to play this very special game of Number Wang are two brand new contestants, Julie from Durham and Simon, who is from space. Well, let's get on. It's time for round one. Let's play Number Wang. Julie, to go first. Nine. Fourteen. That's Number Wang. And before we move on to round two, a quick word from Giles Brandreth, who's with us all week in Number Corner. So, Giles, any funny number stories for us? Yes. Once I ate 18 cakes. <laughs> More from Giles later. And Giles' story is particularly apt for our next round. It's time for Number Scoff. In front of you are two plates of edible numbers, and Julie, as the winner of the last round, you go last. So it's Simon to play first. Six. That's Number Wang, scoffer number. Julie? Seventeen. That's Number Wang. So this seven point seven. That's Number Wang. <laughs> That's Number Wang, tuck in. <laughs> oh, belch rang for Simon, which means double number points. And at the end of that round, neither of you have eaten a number four, so bad luck. Just time for a quick word from Giles. Oh, three. <laughs> Priceless. Well, let's look at the scores, and it's absolutely neck and neck, because both of our contestants are on 48, apart from Julie, who's on 12. So, that could all change in the final round. It's time for Wanganam. Let's rotate the board. <laughs> Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, January the 12th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be as those who heard last week's show may have guessed from today's opener, our theme today is a continuation of the one begun last week, on the intentional destruction of the concepts of polarization, left and right, and some of the rules of epistemology, the science that validates knowledge. Our conversation today pretty much begins right where we left off last week after we listened to Lex Friedman and Michael Malice suggest that, quote-unquote, it sucks that freedom and freedom of speech and transparency are only to be found on the right. And in so doing, they were not only denying the political reality of that polarity, they were denying their own political identity as being on the right, something they could never bring themselves to say, but which I concluded based on all of the arguments and values that I heard them express. Well, in a few minutes, we'll be hearing from two high-profile speakers on the left, who, irony of ironies, in identifying the same political values of the right as did Friedman and Malice, got caught in the same trap and expressed the same frustrations and denials about discovering that these values exist on the right. Talk about an intellectual and philosophical train wreck. The fun begins right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. 
Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now for those on the right, that is, for those who value individual freedom and all that it implies. One of the most destructive tactics against the cause of freedom and individualism is the redefinition of the word polarization as a pejorative, along with the destruction of the political terms left and right by making them no longer distinguishable from each other. Consequently, those accused of polarizing an issue or debate, or of being extreme right-wing, have found themselves on the defensive, thanks to their mistaken belief that these attributes are something negative. And while this is not so, it is evidence that those on the left have been incredibly successful at concept destruction. So successful, in fact, that they are themselves falling victim to their own false concepts when they discover that their own experiences do not match the leftist narrative. Now, if you're wondering why I'm making such a big deal over what, on the surface, is to many nothing more than an argument over semantics, the best way I can justify my own sense of urgency about the importance of polarization and the necessity of understanding that left and right are political polarities without any so-called spectrum in between, is because of my own personal experience in this regard, both as a witness to others on the right defeating their own efforts, and as a victim of this thinking myself. You know, I'm kind of speaking like the ex-smoker warning his friends about the risks of smoking. I'm not speaking as some armchair academic who has some kind of theory I want to toss out at everybody. I'm speaking from experience, some 40 to 50 years of it. Experience unlike that of any other individual I have ever met, either inside or outside of the political sphere. And here I sit, watching good people all around me making the same epistemological mistakes I made, and watching the world continually drift leftward, which is the political polarity of tyranny in all of its variant forms. Now, I will elaborate on this as the show progresses, but for right now, let's be clear about this. Saying that left and right are no longer relevant in politics is like saying that good and evil are no longer relevant in religion, or that attraction and repulsion are no longer relevant in magnetism, or that right and wrong are no longer relevant in morality, or that rational and irrational are no longer relevant in epistemology, or that reality and fantasy are no longer relevant in metaphysics. And you know what? (laughs) That's exactly what is being said by the establishment with regard to each and every one of the examples I just cited. When it comes to the power and necessity of using definitions that correspond to reality, we must never lose sight of the fact that words, concepts define and determine all of our thoughts. And if those words do not properly describe reality, to act upon those thoughts has devastating consequences, not the least of which are war, famine, poverty, and tyranny itself. Okay, to appreciate the full context of the conversation we are about to hear, 
You might wish to recall or re-listen to Lex Fridman in conversation with Michael Malice on last week's show, especially when they both bizarrely agreed that it sucked for freedom to be on the right. Remember that? Now, the two lefties, to whom I referred at the top of today's show, and they do call themselves that, are none other than comedian and YouTuber Russell Brand, in conversation with his guest, actor Tim Robbins. Apparently, Robbins was beginning to find himself on the left's hate list after questioning the COVID rollouts and the government's contradictory responses to what it was calling a virus threat. But what's really interesting about this conversation is that these two supposed left-wingers aren't exactly sticking to a left-wing narrative. On this side of our upcoming bumper, Tim Robbins briefly shares his awakening realization that something was amiss on the COVID narrative that the government was pushing. And just get a load of how their conversation on the return side of the bumper turns into a denial of their own discovery and experience that freedom and politics are a left-right thing and that freedom is to be found on the right. Why did you feel it necessary to speak out against some of the measures that took place socially during the period of the pandemic? What was important and significant about it for you? Well, first let me say that I, I didn't at first. Uh, I bought into it. I was masking everywhere. I was keeping my social distance. So I was uh, adhering to the, the, the requests made of me. And um, I felt, you know, angry at people that didn't do that. And it wasn't until I came to the UK in January of 2021 that I started to have questions. And I joined the protest, uh, not because I was joining the protest, because I was curious about what was going on. And I started talking to people. And I saw the way that they were being described in the press, and it wasn't true. These were not, uh, you know, national front Nazis. These were liberals and lefties and people that uh, believed in personal freedom. And, and I, uh, I became, began to educate myself and I began to open my mind um, to what was going on. And um, so I was really grateful to have been in this experience so that I could get a different perspective. Do you feel, Tim, that the pandemic revealed something about the nature of establishment power? There were a few uh, instances that were really disturbing to me. One was when the, uh, I believe it was the CDC or the FDA, uh, changed the definition of a vaccine on their website. Uh, another was that the, when they um, denied that natural immunity was something. So there was an awful lot of people that got COVID early on. I, I believe I did um, uh, in, in February of uh, 2020. In the past, natural immunity is one of the building blocks to moving forward. Some people get vaccinated, some people have natural immunity, and Eventually, we have, what do they call that? Um, herd immunity. Herd immunity. So um, the, the fact that there were these change of definitions uh, was something that my, you know, my alarm bells went off. And so I, I wondered what is going on? What is beyond 
Well, the very uh, real idea of taking care of people and making sure that we don't have a, a, a terrible uh, death rate. Uh, but then we also became aware that the, the most people at risk were, were either immunocompromised or elderly. And then when you consider that the WHO, the World Health Organization, changed its protocol on um, virus outbreaks, which in the past had been you lock down the vulnerable, you take care of them, you make sure they're taken care of, but you let society go on so that it can build its, its herd immunity. Um, this was changed as well. We went into lockdown with healthy people, with children, and that didn't seem to be wise to me. So all I can respond to is as some, uh, someone that has, is concerned about what the result of those doctrines, that policy had on us as human beings. And it's not good. We turned into um, tribal, angry, vengeful people. And I, I don't think that's something that is sustainable for the earth, that we start demonizing people that don't agree with our particular health policies and turn them into monsters, turn them into uh, pariahs, um, say that they don't deserve a hospital bed. Uh, I think about, you know, people that have made bad mistakes in their lives where they take too many drugs and they overdose. And that's totally their choice. That's totally their responsibility. Yet we take care of them. Yet we bring them to the hospital. Yet we save their lives because we're compassionate because we, we want to make sure that people live. And this turned. It turned into, you should fucking die because you have not complied. That's incredibly dangerous. I like your point too, Tim, that whenever we know a change in the meaning of words, it's likely that something foul is afoot. I'm a person, of course, that believes that inclusivity and individuals' rights to identify however they want to, to express themselves without harming others, of course, is paramount. That's what libertarianism or individual freedom has to mean. What, like you've evidently undertaken, is a personal journey of discovery based on actual principles and learning. And, and, and what I feel like is that this is precisely what's required, not to increase polarity, not to increase polemicism, which even the words themselves in their purest form indicate would create intransigence. Once something's magnetized to a particular position, there is no possibility of fluidity. There is no possibility of change. The, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, liberalism meant we care about vulnerable people, uh, conversation is necessary, freedom, literally, of speech, freedom of movement, like these movement, things, yes. freedom now has become like a right-wing trope. Like this makes me feel that there are no real values or principles underwriting that entire, what we might call establishment liberalism. How do you position yourself when these transitions indicate a complete lack of real values? It, uh, it disturbs me. Um, I want to remind people that um, this isn't a political thing. Uh, the, the, the people's decisions uh, that they make uh, for their own health are their own decisions to make. And um, 
to condemn them is a dangerous thing. Uh, I think we have less and less ability to reach across our political differences to talk to each other. I try in my own life to do that. What we're dealing with here is, is um, kind of an extension of what happens when your political discourse and your communal experience is here yeah. uh, in an online forum. Uh, it's very easy to be hateful and divisive when you're in your dark room typing missives at people you disagree with. It's very difficult to do that in person eye to eye with a human being next to you. Uh, that, that's, hatred is very difficult for human beings. It's a lot easier here because it's abstracted. Yeah. It's part of this, uh, you know, I'll just blah, 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 yeah. And no, but you can't do that in person. And I, I discovered this during the Iraq war when I was being vilified online as, as uh, you know, a, a terrorist supporter and a Saddam lover and all these terrible things that because I wanted to know whether there were weapons of mass destruction before we invaded right and I was if you went online you would I would I, I, you could I could make the conclusion that my life's not safe I, I can't go out but yet I was living in New York City at the time I was walking my kids to school every day and not one person not one person on the street said anything like that and it made me realize this is an abstraction. This is something that's not real. Mm. It's, it's something that stirs up hatred, stirs up division, and serves someone or some entity that benefits from our division. Yeah, you see more and more that what is being prevented actually are sort of natural human traits, our tendency to trust, our tendency yes. to form alliances, our love of freedom. Once it becomes easy to condemn people either as conspiracy theorists, as right-wing extremists, what you're essentially saying is we no longer need to engage in discourse with those people. They are inhuman. They can be condemned. Where are we? Where, how do you feel when it's like left to Ron DeSantis to be the person that says we're going to have a statewide investigation into the efficacy of vaccines? What does this tell us? And, and if the only dissenting voices are right wing voices, which I would imagine at some point are not underwritten by sort of the values of real freedom for ordinary people, but their own sort of political ends. Where, what do you do with that, Tim? Well, I don't believe that's true, actually. I believe there's an awful lot of people uh, that would consider themselves to be left that are um, for personal freedom. And <clears throat> it's the fact that DeSantis is the one that's saying it, uh, you know, that's unfortunate for the Democratic Party, but they're, because they have seem to have excluded that voice uh, from their own world. But ultimately, oh, so everyone has to follow their own heart and their own um, idea of what will make them safe. Mm. And I don't, I don't condemn people or judge them for not speaking. I just feel it's reductive uh, to say it's a left-right thing. I, I don't I believe it is. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, I, I know personally people that have voted for Trump, and I don't 
I talk to them. Uh, they're not evil people. They just feel a different way. It means that there is a necessity for a kind of new humanism, a, a political movement that from the beginning is truly inclusive and is about individual freedom and therefore accepts at its heart other people's right to live differently, whether that's around medications or culture or sexuality or, you know, all, all of the old, what would have once regarded as the old liberal issues, as well as some new ideas around progressivism and traditionalism. It seems that the system itself has been utterly co-opted. There's no place for someone like you or I, old school lefties, establishment liberals, artsy liberal, but that's gone now. So it seems like we, by default, have to become kind of radical because <laughs> what, what else is there to do, Tim? The disenfranchised left. Yes, I agree. That is, the, that is where we are. Um, <clears throat> what do we do about it? Well, mm. we just continue. We just continue with love. You know, we continue with um, tolerance of, uh, of even that. And, um, you know, it's, 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 it's the, the big challenge is when you're, when you're trying to resist that or, or oppose that, um, how not to become uh, your enemy. Yeah. And um, I think that's part of what happened to uh, what you, I, I won't even call it the left, I, what happened to the Democrats is that I think Trump drove them batshit crazy, you know? And it drove me fucking crazy. I don't want to hear him anymore. I was like, God, you know, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know if it's wise to to deplatform people. I think you have to win in the court of public opinion. Yeah. I think you have to uh, make your case as best you can, and debate it uh, as best you can, and try to win over hearts and minds that way. But we have to have an absolutism about those freedoms. If you start making compromises, it will dissemble. Wow, what a train wreck of contradictions and confusion. From two people who, lefties or not, I sincerely do believe are in search of the truth and who are struggling from an extremely disadvantaged philosophical starting point. I was actually impressed by Tim Robbins' recognition that when you hear about a definition being changed, you know that you're dealing with corruption or evil at some point in the chain of communication. It's amazing how many people simply do not understand this epistemological principle. His honesty about the nature and character of the protesters he talked to was commendable. His observations regarding the impersonal nature of debating issues online versus in person were worth being aware of and quite valid on many levels. But the rest of the conversation was an epistemological disaster. And there it was again, front and center, just as in the conversation between Friedman and Malice last week. The polarization principle. So let us begin with that irrational fear of polarization which within the space of the conversation we just heard was completely contradicted. Russell Brand says that we should not increase polarity. Even the words themselves are indicative of intransigence. Once magnetized to a particular position, there is no possibility of change. Well, is he even hearing himself? He's absolutely right about the nature of polarity. But why does he say he's against it when clearly he is not? 
nor was Tim Robbins. Quote, we have to have an absolutism about freedom. If you make compromises, it will dissemble. End quote. And rightly concludes Tim Robbins. Sounds pretty magnetized to a particular position to me. And in terms of the political polarities of left and right, freedom is magnetized to the right polarity. But, says Robbins, it disturbs me. This isn't a political thing. Personal decisions are people's own decisions to make. (laughs) Wow, how anybody can possibly say that the right to make your own personal decisions, individual freedom, is not a political thing, is utterly beyond my understanding. It is a completely political thing, and the thing to which he's referred is exclusive to the right. When Brand fears that there is no possibility of change, he is confusing politics with principles. Principles do not change. That's why we call them principles, for heaven's sakes. Brand is objecting to this, even as he's calling for principles using that very word. It just goes to show you how carelessly people use these concepts and do not really understand them. And then there's that wacko, ever-present objection to labeling the polarity of political principles as left and right. What's glaringly wrong about this is that the people who do this never offer or name any replacement label concept or philosophy with which they would replace the terms left and right. And you want to know why? Because there aren't any. And contrary to the assertion of Russell Brand, libertarianism or individual freedom, quote-unquote, are not the same concept, since libertarianism is not about freedom, either in theory or in practice. In this regard, I would like to share a feedback post made to our blog site regarding our year-end show featuring Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada, to which Robin V. responded, quote, Hi, Robert. I beg to differ that the PPC is the only party that is right for Canadians. The Libertarian Party of Canada, LPC, has been advocating for individual rights to life, liberty, and property since day one for over the last 40 years and will not support Canada's participation in senseless wars. I feel it's just not right to give such an opinion without having an audience with Jacques Boudreau, leader of the LPC. Cheers. <laughs> End quote. And cheers to you too, Robin. Funny you mentioned for over the last 40 years, Robin. Because you know who two of the main Canadian libertarians of that time were? Yours truly and Mark Emery. I actually ran as a federal libertarian candidate way back in the 1970s. And you know what we were pushing? (laughs) Libertarianism, not freedom. Are you Ron Swanson? I am. Okay, what exactly did you teach my daughter? Oh, you must be Mrs. Burkus. Lauren was supposed to do a paper on why government matters. This is what she wrote. It doesn't. Well said. Is this a joke? No, ma'am. I legitimately believe that. I'm a libertarian. Oh, that's nice. Well, she is a fourth grader. And fourth graders aren't supposed to have their heads crammed full of weird ideas. They're supposed to do cute reports and get gold stars. More freedom through less government was the insane formula for freedom that was offered by the Libertarian Party, and for that matter, by many conservatives and by the National Citizens Coalition in years gone by. Neither freedom nor government are quantitative. You either have freedom or you don't. You either have government or you don't. And right now in Canada, we have neither. 
To confuse statism and rule with government and governing is a fatal error to the cause of individual freedom. When I first campaigned for the Libertarian Party of Canada, I would spend the largest part of my entire public presentations trying to define what libertarianism was to the public. Ayn Rand, whom libertarians constantly cite as their inspiration, herself rejected libertarianism. Quote, Above all, do not join the wrong ideological groups or movements in order to quote-unquote do something. By ideological, in this context, I mean groups or movements proclaiming some vaguely generalized, undefined, and usually contradictory political goals. For example, the Conservative Party, which subordinates reason to faith and substitutes theocracy for capitalism, or the libertarian hippies, who subordinate reason to whims and substitute anarchism for capitalism. To join such groups means to reverse the philosophical hierarchy and to sell out fundamental principles for the sake of some superficial political action which is bound to fail. It means that you help the defeat of your own ideas and the victory of your enemies. End quote. Of course, one notable person who calls himself an anarchist is Michael Malice, who we heard on the show last week. And please be clear, I love the guy and agree with probably most of his observations and ideals. And one of his heroes is none other than Murray Rothbard, who in Malice's 2021 book, The Anarchist Handbook, described Rothbard thusly, quote, Murray Rothbard is popularly regarded as the godfather of anarcho-capitalism. Throughout his very long career, the economist, philosopher, and historian covered an enormous swath of issues from the perspective of individual rights. His article, Anatomy of the State, is commonly cited as the one which gets readers to take a radically different perspective on the nature of the state from what they have been taught in school and makes them realize just how malevolent government really is, end quote. Well, I imagine that both our feedback writer, Robin, and Michael Malice himself would be quite surprised to learn that in September of 1983, at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, and in front of a huge audience comprised of people from every political party in Canada, plus various academics, there were two keynote speakers. The purpose of the event was to announce that a political party named the Freedom Party of Ontario would come into being on the first day of the Orwellian year 1984. And guess who the two speakers were? Yours truly, and none other than Murray Rothbard himself. I still have my autographed copy of Rothbard's 1,000-page Man, Economy, and State, in which he wrote, quote, To Bob Metz, For Man and Economy and against the state. Best regards, Marie Rothbard, end quote. And I already knew by this time in 1983 that I was neither a libertarian, nor an anarchist, nor opposed to government. Freedom cannot exist without government. And that was why, in choosing which of Rothbard's books I wanted to have autographed in my own collection, I chose Man, Economy, and State, rather than his book, Towards a New Liberty which I regarded as a flawed prescription towards any liberty, particularly one with an adjective like new in front of it. And if you're a long-time listener to this show, you already know what I think about adjectives like that. They mean, quote-unquote, not the new right, the new freedom. These are merely bad attempts to recapture the meaning of the original term in the first place. And on this point, let me make a very positive statement about those defined as anarchists, libertarians, and the like. 
Their critiques of the state are often brilliant and undeniably point to many of the key problems that arise when government gets involved in economics and in regulating personal choices and freedom. Bang on the money. And on the topic of economics, I would place Marie Rothbard near the top of any list as being among the best of all economists the world has ever known. But when it came to trying to present anarchism or libertarianism as some kind of alternative system that would protect freedom, the inconsistencies and contradictions were not possible for me to support. But the people I met through various libertarian events and activities were awesome, good people, but trying to point themselves in the right direction with a broken political compass that no longer recognizes its own polarity. Consider this definition of anarchism, taken from Tom Burnham's 1975 Dictionary of Misinformation. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't a book with a title like that be an interesting read today? Fact checkers on steroids or what? But here's the definition, anarchism, quote, Entirely in contrast to the popular conception, anarchism is probably the most idealistic and peaceful of political theories. As a philosophy, it assumes a system in which the individual is free and living in peace. It looks forward to a time when human beings can coexist within a framework of voluntary associations. It is in no sense either Marxist or Leninist. Anarchism, in fact, rejects the Marxist-Leninist theory of the dictatorship of the proletariat as it rejects any theory involving control of one class or individual by another." End quote. So did you catch the self-evident flaw in that definition? Quote, as a philosophy, it assumes a system in which the individual is free and living in peace, end quote. <laughs> well, that's convenient. But philosophies don't assume systems. They provide the metaphysical, epistemological, and moral basis of any such systems. And the system has a name, capitalism which is why someone like Murray Rothbard was forced to describe himself as an anarcho-capitalist, which is a contradiction in terms. And finally, on the subject of libertarians and libertarianism, let me say that I was both honored and privileged to have personally met and get to hear the first Libertarian Party candidate for President of the United States, John Hospers. This occurred in the year 2000, right here in my town of London, Ontario, where again, yours truly was the official registrar and organizer of an international conference sponsored under the International Society of Individual Liberty, and which was held up at the University of Western Ontario. Shockingly to me, Hosper's speech at that event was highly critical of libertarian and anarchistic ideologies. And I suppose this shouldn't have been too surprising, given that he was a personal friend of Ayn Rand herself. For anyone interested in hearing what John Hospers had to say at that event, you can hear various highlights that we featured on Just Right 154, which aired June 3, 2010, and again on episodes 200 and 206, which aired in 2011. Professor Hospers was a kind and gentle man who became a regular listener to Just Right, and shortly before his passing, he posted this final comment to our Facebook page. Not right wing, just right. Nice. Oh, hi, Carla. Hi, Marge. Listen, <clears throat> I got a terrific riddle for you. No, don't, please. I don't like riddles. Oh, but this is really a good one. I mean, I'm, I'm sincere. I hate riddles. Riddles give me headaches. Don't. 
Okay, you're in a room. Carla, don't. With an all-southern exposure. No, please don't do that. And a bear walks oh, by geez. the room. Oh. What color's the bear? I don't care. Well, come on, try. I don't want to try. Well, it's only a little riddle. All right, give it to me again. Okay. You're in a room. I'm in a room. With all southern exposure. Yeah. A bear walks by a the bear room. Walks by. What color's the bear? Oh, I hate these things. Okay, brown. Brown? <laughs> you think it's brown? Brown. <laughs> brown. <laughs> Cheer up, Carla. <laughs> brown okay what color was it well it's a riddle figure it out <laughs> well, i don't want to figure it out marge i mean a, a room southern exposure bear what color's the bear i got it what a headache i told you about that the riddles always give me what you, you, you just tell me what color is the bear i can't carl if you value our friendship you'll tell me the color of that stupid bear i can't i don't know the answer <laughs> you sat here and you gave me a riddle and you gave me a headache and then you tell me you don't know the answer well somebody told me the dumb thing and i never did get the answer well then how do you know it wasn't brown because that's what i said and they laughed at me too well thanks a lot you ruined my whole day all right, I'm sorry, Marge. Okay, let's say that a bear didn't go by no, the window. No, no, no. Right? The point is, the point is, the point is, the point is a bear <laughs> did go by the window. Now, what color was he? Marge, you're being absolutely ridiculous about this whole thing. Hey, 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 hey. If it's not the two prettiest girls in the whole building. How's it going, girls? Terrific. I'm just swell. Hey, what, what's with you two? All I did was bring up a stupid little riddle, and she gets all upset about it. Riddles. I love riddles. Oh. Which one? Which one is Some it? Some dumb thing about a, a room with a southern exposure. Oh, and, and the bear goes by. What color was the bear? <laughs> Come on, it's an old one. Are you kidding? Hey, I heard a great new riddle, though. No, what about the bear? Forget it, it's an old one. Here's a brand new one. Listen to this. Yeah, no, look. What about the bear? Now, look, here's a brand new riddle. Now, look. You're driving a bus, right? Now, there's ten people on the bus. Oh, it's... Yeah. yeah. And the wait. first stop... Wait, wait, wait. wait. Okay. Wait, wait a minute. Okay. okay. Yeah, ten. First stop. Uh-huh. Ten people are on the bus. On the bus. Now the first stop, two people get on. Two. And four people get off. Yeah. Okay? Next stop, three people get on. On? Right. Yeah. Three people get on and four people get off. Uh, yeah. Next stop, nobody gets on. Yeah. And two people get off. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Got it? Wait a yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now what's the name of the bus driver? <laughs> But what's his name? Yeah, right. That's terrific, isn't it? That's a yeah. good one. <laughs> what she what she said? Well, it's not fair. Not fair to tell you. It's a riddle. <laughs> It's a trick. There's no answer to this. No, there's a legitimate answer. How? <laughs> How can there be a legitimate answer to something like that? When you, uh, you, 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 
All you did was tell me how many people got on. How many people got on? How many people got on? How many people got on? How can that be a legitimate answer to something like that? Well, she got it. Well, how? How? How did she get it when she's so dumb and stupid she didn't even know the color of the bear? You didn't know the color? No! No, I didn't. Oh, my. Well, come here. <laughs> How did I miss such an easy one? Sure, it's easy. After somebody tells you, sure. It's the Southern Exposure. Right. <laughs> oh, listen. Marge yeah. and I are going to go to the movies tonight. You want to come with us? We'll all go Dutch. She's not coming to any movies with us, and you're not coming to any movies with us? What is the matter with you, Mark? Please tell me the answer to those riddles. God, and spoil it for you. Why don't you just give me a hint? Well, southern exposure. What's that got to do with anything? If you are going to get this upset, you shouldn't even get involved in riddles in the first place. I hate you both. I hate you. Get that upset about it. It's with her. She thought the bear was brown. Brown. <laughs> Hi, Marge. I got a great riddle for you. Now, if you're in a room with an all southern exposure and a bear walks by. You know, I was sent a clip by Eddie Bravo this morning of a John Birch Society video from the 1990s, and you'd think they'd been in a time machine to the future. They explain how that from 2005 to 2015 through UNESCO and the World Brainwashing System, and it's teaching people to not have logic and believe two plus two equals five. This is a plan. <laughs> Uh, the people who are perpetrating these things expect to do this and make it last. And the answer to that is that you steal a generation of children and you indoctrinate them so that they accept these ideas and they become global citizens in the coming global village. UNESCO came out and declared 2005 to 2015 the decade of education for sustainable development. But they go on to say that it will encompass the 40 chapters of Agenda 21. That is your federal national curriculum. The entire purpose of second grade social studies is to transfer loyalty from the family to the government and teach them about sustainable economic consumption. Students construct their own understandings of reality and realize that objective reality is not knowable. So why bother? The truth is the truth which keep men free is being suppressed in order to prop up the attitude training agenda. And it moves on. This is our new uh, math called connected mathematics. Standard three tells us that students learn that mathematics is man-made, that it is arbitrary, and good solutions are arrived at by consensus. Most of us assume two plus two is always going to equal four. You're wrong. We might reach a new consensus. 
Uh, how well does it work? Well, they tell you. In the teacher's guide in the back, it tells us that because the curriculum doesn't emphasize arithmetic computations done by hand, some students may not do as well on tests assessing computational skills. We believe such a trade-off in the favor of CMP is very much to the student's advantage in the world of work. Our children are mathematically illiterate on purpose. How do I know on purpose? Why isn't this just a basic bad idea? Because the Sustainable Development Plan tells us so. Generally, more highly educated people who have higher incomes consume more resources than poorly educated people who tend to have lower incomes. In this case, more education increases the threat to sustainability. Charlotte Iserby, I owe you an apology. I did not believe for the longest time it was a deliberate dumbing down. I thought the dumbing down was a natural consequence of a bad idea. Folks, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. The sustainable globalist goal is the orchestration of a planned fall of American principles, values, and lifestyles. The effect on the average American will be devastating. With modernizing technology, the ordinary person will live without independence, privacy, or substantive rights. Those are from the UNESCO UN World Plans. I've seen them myself. We're going to make people dumb and poor. Actually said that. And now they're so mind-controlled and so dumb, they think a man can have a baby. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Before we rush on, just one or two final points about libertarianism and government. The way I look at it is that we don't have government now. There's no government to have less of. What we are experiencing is the rule of tyranny, not the government of freedom. But the notion of government is not what's intrinsically corrupt, it's the people in government who are corrupt. And if one were to eliminate government, we'd still be stuck with the corrupt people, and that problem won't go away without an epistemological revolution and the establishment of a principled government. And it must be said that in all of its manifestations, government is a gun, an instrument of force, and most importantly, as Isabel Patterson clarifies, force is what is governed. Freedom means freedom from coercion and from the initiation of the use of force. And no matter how you cut it, if you intend to preserve this condition we call freedom, that too is ultimately dependent upon the use of force. And to the individual, freedom is a limit set within personal responsibility, not a license to do as one pleases. And consider the irony in that expression. All I'm saying is keep an open mind for a while, listen to your teachers, and read all the books you can. Then when you're 18, you can drink, gamble, and become a libertarian. The drinking age is 21. I know. Another stupid government rule. One of the things that Joe and I have been discussing in the seven years, eight years we've been doing the show is how the war on language is a very, very discreet, powerful, tactical weapon the left uses. And it uses the war on language for two reasons. War on language, I mean the redefinition of terms mid-game. 
They move the goalposts mid-game to keep you off guard. That's number one. This is the two reasons this war on language exists. And secondly, they do it mid-game to keep you off guard, to put you outside of the perimeter of acceptable conversation. It's power. You own the language, man. You own everything. Everything. It puts you instantly outside of the perimeter of acceptable conversation and makes you, look at him. Look at that. Look at Joe. Big Ed. That's what they do. This is done on purpose. Christopher Rufo put this tweet out the other day. Did you see this? Cambridge Dictionary just dropped a new definition of the word woman. Oh, they did. Because I thought a woman was an adult human female. I'm pretty sure that's only been the definition for like forever. Here's the new definition. New. An adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth, i.e. she was the first trans woman elected to national office. Mary is a woman who was assigned male at birth. No, 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 that's not, that's, that's, that's not the definition of a woman. That, that, that's not it. It's an adult human female. You see the war on language? How it slowly, slowly progresses and you get to the point where you find yourself being labeled a bigot by people who are just doing this as a political tactic to put you outside of the realm of acceptable conversation? None. And I mean, none of this is by accident. Learn to recognize the tactics and learn to recognize the tools to fight back. And one of the tools to fight back, believe it or not, are Saul Alinsky's rules. Saul Alinsky was no friend to freedom and liberty. His rules for radicals were designed for radicals. Small groups of people who, fighting a bigger, larger, probably more organized force, he gave them rules to be able to take them down. The rules, ladies and gentlemen, work. One of the most important rules is his fourth one. Make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. If they're going to tell you it's a rule, then you damn well better live up to it too. So in other words, if you're going to say, hey, the new rules are of acceptable conversation or this, words are violence and violence isn't words, then we're going to go and analyze your words. And we're going to point out the violence there, too, and make you live up to your own book of rules. This amazing clip. I broke it into three short pieces. Nancy Mace up on Capitol Hill just destroying this leftist activist, trying to claim that, you know, Republicans and conservatives are inciting violence with their words. I want you to watch this. This is Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace. She's up on Capitol Hill at this hearing about violent rhetoric. And, of course, it's meant to target conservatives, which is always the case. So she does something really smart here. She opens up the hearing, and what you're going to hear is all of the leftist activists at this hearing. She gets them all on the record answering yes or no about how they feel violent rhetoric is a problem. And she gets them on the record first. Super smart. She sets them up. So I want you to listen to this part first. Check this out. Is rhetoric on social media a problem and a threat to our democracy, Mr. Ward? Yes, absolutely. Mr. Siegel. Yes. Ms. Caraballo. Yes. Ms. Nomani. Yes. Ms. Tyler. Yes. Yes. Um, another question I have. Uh, do you believe that rhetoric targeting officials with violence for carrying out their constitutional duties um, is a threat to democracy, Mr. Ward? Mr. Siegel. Yes. 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 Okay, I want to play that for you on purpose, and I broke that out separately, because this is brilliant. 
If you're going to follow Alinsky's rules, which you should, and you're going to get them, you're going to get them on the record. You want to get them on the record about what their rule is. Do you believe X? Okay. Yes, yes. You're under oath. Yes, I do. You do. You believe that violent rhetoric can cause violence out there and people should refrain from that? Okay. Well, here's one of the liberal activists, Alejandro Caraballo. So Nancy Mace proceeds to pull out some blow-ups of some of her tweets. Remember, she believes in stopping all the violent rhetoric. I want you to listen to this exchange. This is just glorious. Check this out. Only a few weeks after the attempted attack on a Supreme Court justice on June 25th, one of the witnesses, Alejandra Caraballo, tweeted out the following in response to a decision on abortion overturning Roe v. Wade. And I'll quote directly from the tweet. The six justices who overturned Roe should never know peace again. It is our civic duty to accost them every time they're in public. They are pariahs. Since women don't have their rights, these justices should never have a peaceful moment in public again. Should never have a peaceful moment in public again. Gosh, mm. Joe, that sounds like you could be inciting violence. Never have a peaceful moment. I mean, yeah, you and I aren't, you know, threat analysts anymore or anything like that. I mean, we're not psychotherapists, but that kind of sounds to me like the exact kind of rhetoric the lefty activists would call out themselves. So now, of course, Alejandro Caraballo is caught off guard. Like, my gosh, they've kind of got me there on Alinsky rule number four. So here's a little tactic. I like for you to understand the tactics. You can get ahead of these too. The tactic the left uses when they're busted, which is pretty much all the time, is they say, well, my tweets are being taken out of context, <laughs> to which you should respond immediately. What other context and not having another peaceful moment in their lives? How else can someone re give us, please, another context? We would love to hear it and watch them spin and play the euphemisms game. Listen to Alejandro Caraballo use the context scam here. Check this out. My last question today of Ms. Caraballo, do you stand by these comments, this kind of rhetoric on social media? And do you believe it's a threat to democracy? Thank you, Representative, for the opportunity to clarify and provide context to my tweets. <clears throat> um, I have a question. Is it yes or no? Do you believe your rhetoric is a threat to democracy when you're calling to a cost a branch of government, the Supreme Court. I don't believe that's a correct uh, characterization what of you my tweeted, statements. Though. Did you not tweet that? That you thought that the Supreme Court justices should be accosted? Did what I'm saying is that, that, that is no? not an accurate characterization of my statements. No one's, character no one's characterizing your statement. They just read it. Yeah. Nancy Mace isn't characterizing anything. You know, I hate the word literally, but she's literally reading her own tweets. There's no characterizing of anything. Nancy Mace did the country a huge favor here, folks. This is how you fight back against these people. You take Alinsky's rules and you use them yourself. And that is exactly what we did during the first years of Freedom Party's formation. We campaigned on so many issues and won them all based on the rules that Alinsky outlined in his book, Rules for Radicals. And I would unhesitatingly recommend this book for anyone actually concerned with politics. The rules are perfectly applicable to political campaigning, whether left or right. 
During our first years with Freedom Party, we defeated a $110 million bid to host the 1991 Pan Am Games at taxpayer expense in London, Ontario. We ended the prohibition of shopping on Sundays, even though every political party in the legislature was on record opposed to it. I became the first person in Ontario to beat the Ontario Human Rights Commission at its own game when I successfully defended a London landlord against false accusations of racism. And I'm not a lawyer. We beat and defeated dozens of so-called business improvement areas, which are really tax schemes disguised as downtown business associations. We defeated a unionized municipal garbage strike in London when we rented trucks during the strike and picked up people's garbage ourselves. It made news right across the country. I could go on and on and on, but if you're interested in seeing the documentation for all of this, simply visit the website of Freedom Party at freedomparty.on.ca, and it's all there. The news coverage, the reactions, my own argument before the Human Rights Commission, everything. The reason Freedom Party's ad hoc single-issue campaigns were all so successful was precisely because there was a bona fide, officially registered political party behind them. It's not that the parties in power even for a minute entertained the possibility that Freedom Party would win a seat or win the election. What they fear is the loss of any number of votes to anyone. The parties in power are obsessed with losing votes and terrified of it. Now, to be honest, I couldn't believe our successes, but that was before I learned an ugly truth about politics on the electoral front. And the lesson was this. You can win all the political battles and campaigns, but still persistently lose the war, which in this context means not getting elected. Unfortunately, most of the people who supported us in those various ad hoc campaigns immediately abandoned us when they won their particular cause and went back to either not voting or voting for the traditional parties that created their problems in the first place. Like it or not, a majority of the public is a long way from wanting individual freedom in a way that will benefit all people. That's because freedom serves the general interest and not any one specific interest, so as a relative motivator for political action, it still comes in second place at least until freedom advocates are able to polarize the cause of freedom against some threat that will appeal to a general interest. And you want to know what Saul Alinsky's most important rule was? His last one, rule number 13. Quote, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. All issues must be polarized if action is to follow. The classic statement on polarization comes from Christ. He that is not with me is against me. Luke 11:23. End quote. Downright biblical, isn't it? And on that note, one last rule to mention. And that is, be sure to join us again next week and every week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright let's play wanganam simon six two six seventy one six fourteen six eight thousand seven hundred nine point three two four 
Sorry, I was miles away. Um, I think Simon got Wanganam ages ago. Did you say six? Yes. That's Wanganam! Julie, you have been Wanganam, but Simon, thou art Lord Simon of Number Wang. That's all from Number Wang today. Just time for a last word from Giles. Number Wang. It's Number Wang. Well, until next time, from all of us here, good number one.